Welcome to tape number 10 of Truth, Victory Over Error, or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth's Victory Over Air by David Dixon, which we pray you find to be a great blessing, and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading of Truth's Victory over Error by David Dixon, chapter 28 of Baptism. Question 1. Is the sacrament of baptism with water by Christ's appointment to be continued in His church to the end of the world? Yes. Matthew 27, verse 28, excuse me, verses 19 and 20. Well then, do not the Quakers err who maintain that baptism with water is not an ordinance of divine institution and that there is no gospel precept for it? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ taking his farewell of his disciples gave them this commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. According to the original world, make all nations disciples by your doctrine, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, all which words are spoken by his own breath, whence it is clear that the same very persons that were commanded to make all nations disciples by their doctrine were commanded to baptize them, but it was not in their power to administer the inward baptism, that is, to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Men may well administer the water or external sign, but it is Christ that bestows the inward grace and things signified, as is clear from Matthew 3, verse 11, where John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. If any man had received this power of baptism with the Holy Ghost, then surely John would have received it, whom Jesus so highly commends, as there was not a greater than he born of women. Matthew 11, verse 11. And though our Savior subjoins, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, yet this will not infer that any among the teachers of the gospel had the power of baptizing with the Holy Ghost, which he had not, but only that they did show Christ more clearly as having most perfectly accomplished whatsoever was requisite to our salvation and did publish this not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles 
And so Christ, as the Master employed only the disciples as his servants to dispense and act ministerially in his service, reserving the blessing of their employments to himself. Now, baptizing with the Holy Ghost is the greatest blessing of the gospel, and so cannot flow from flow but from Christ himself. Second, because the disciples of Christ acted only ministerially under him in working of miracles, therefore they could not administer baptism with the Holy Ghost, seeing this is a greater power than the other. The curing of the soul is a far greater work than to cure miraculously the body. The work of conversion and regeneration is a work beyond the creating of heaven and earth. There was only here the introducing of a new form, but no contrary form or quality to be expelled. But in this, the heart of stone must not only be taken away, but a heart of flesh must be given. That they acted only ministerially under Christ is evident from what Peter says, Ye men of Israel, why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power and godliness we had made this man to walk? Acts 3, verse 12. And the same Peter says, Ananias, Jesus Christ, maketh thee whole. Acts 9, verse 34. See also Mark 16, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Third, because if this commission empowered the apostles to baptize only with the Holy Ghost and not with water, then they, in the exercise of this commission, would only have baptized men and women with the Holy Ghost and not with water. But the contrary is manifest. Acts 2, verse 38, where Peter makes a distinction between being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, namely the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit, which are common to all believers and necessary to salvation. Four, because if baptism was with the Holy Ghost, be here meant, then all whom the apostles did baptize were baptized with the Holy Ghost, which is false. For Ananias and Sapphira could not have been hypocrites if they had been baptized with the Holy Ghost. And Simon was baptized, and yet not with the Holy Ghost, as appears by Peter's answer to him, verses 21 and 22 of the fifth chapter. Fifth. Because if Christ's commission carry not a warrant for baptizing with water, whence then had the apostles a warrant for baptizing with water? Either they must produce and let us see another commission for it, or else they must acknowledge that the apostle did warrantably baptize with water. But another commission the Quakers cannot show us from Scripture. Question 2. Is dipping of the person to be baptized into water necessary? No. Is baptizing, baptism rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person? Yes. Acts 2, verses 41. Acts 16, verse 33. Well then, do not the Anabaptists err who maintain dipping to be an absolute and necessary ceremony in baptism? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? Because the Greek word in the original signifies as well to pour and sprinkle water as it signifies to dip. Mark 7, verse 4, where it is said, And when they come from the market, unless they wash or be baptized, they eat not. Second, 
because we read of 3,000 being baptized in one day in the streets of Jerusalem by twelve apostles at the most, where there was no river to dip them into. Acts 2, verse 41. And was not Jerusalem and all Judea and the region round about Jordan baptized by John the Baptist himself alone, which could not be done to all and every one by dipping? Matthew 3, verses 5 and 6. Third, were not many baptized in private houses, as we read in the history of the Acts, chapter 10, verse 47, and 18, verse 8, with 9, verse 17, and 16, verse 33? Fourth, because dipping of the infants into water in these cold countries would be hurtful and dangerous to them, but God will, would rather have mercy than sacrifice, Matthew 9, verse 13. Question 3. Are the infants of one or both believing parents to be baptized? Yes. Genesis 17, verses 7 and 9. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. Well then, do not the Anabaptists err who maintain that no infants, though born of believing parents, ought to be baptized? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because to covenanted ones of which number of infants of believers are no less than their parents, Acts 2, verses 38 and 39, Acts 3, verse 25, Romans 11, verse 16, Genesis 17, verses 7 and 22, that seal of the covenant of which they are capable is not to be denied, Genesis 17, verse 7, 10, and 11. Second, because the outward sacrament of water cannot be denied to such as have received the Spirit of Christ and to whom the promises of the new covenant sealed up in baptism do belong. Acts 10, verse 47. Acts 11, verses 15, 16, and 17. But to some infants of believers, as well as to others come to age, the Spirit of Christ hath been given. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, Luke 1, 15, Matthew 19, verse 14, Mark 10, verses 13 and 14. And to them do the promises belong. Acts 2, verse 39. Third, because the infants of believers are members of the church, which is sanctified and cleansed with the washing of water by the word. Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26, Joel 2, verse 16, Ezekiel 16, verses 20 and 21, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. Fourth, because infants no less than others come to age were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Fifth, because Christ commanded that all nations should be baptized, a great part whereof were infants, Genesis 22, verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 19. 6. Because Christ commanded baptism to be administered to disciples, infants are also here to be taken in. Acts 15, verse 10. Matthew 28, verse 19. The word in the original Greek is teach, instruct, or make disciples all nations, or make disciples among all nations, baptizing them. The signification of this Greek word may be gathered from John 4, verse 1, where it is said that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made disciples, so that these words are both one thing. 7. 
because the children of believers were, by a divine right, circumcised under the Old Testament. Therefore, the children of believers under the New Testament ought to be baptized, because the one hath succeeded the other. That baptism succeeds to circumcision is evident. First, because they both seal up the very same thing. Next, as circumcision was the initiating seal under the Old Testament, so was baptism under the New. And because the apostles did administer it so early to the disciples at the first appearing of their new birth, an interest in the covenant. Moreover, because by baptism we are said to put on Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27, that they both seal up the same thing is evident by comparing Romans 4, verse 11, with Mark 1, verse 4, Acts 2:28, where circumcision is declared to be a seal of the righteousness of faith, and baptism is held forth to be a pledge of the remission of sins, as also may be seen, Romans 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, where the apostle teaches that our being buried with Christ in baptism is our circumcision in Christ, which shows that baptism has succeeded to us in the room of circumcision. 8. Because the apostle says that the infants but of one believing parent are holy, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, that is, are comprehended in the outward covenant of God, and have access to signs and seals of God's grace, as well as they are that are born of both believing parents. Question 4. Are grace and salvation so inseparably annexed unto baptism as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it? No. Are all that are baptized undoubtedly regenerated? No. Acts 8, verse 13 and 23. Well then, do not the Papists and Lutherans err who maintain that baptism is simply necessary to salvation? and that all and those only who are baptized are most surely regenerated in the, that same very moment of time wherein baptism is administered? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the thief upon the cross and others were saved that were never baptized. Luke 23, verse 43. Second, because persons unbaptized have had saving faith. Acts 10, verses 22 and 44. Third, because infants are predestinated unto life, though they die in their mother's belly, yet they cannot perish. Matthew 18, verse 14. Fourth, because some children before their baptism have been beloved of God, whose love is unchangeable. Romans 9, verses 11 and 13. Others have been regenerated by the Holy Ghost. Luke 1, verse 15. And some have been so comprehended within the covenant of grace, Acts 2.39. Fifth, because that baptism without faith and the inward operation of the Holy Spirit hath no efficacy to salvation, Mark 16, verse 16, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Sixth, because the baptism of the Spirit at one time goes before, at another time follows baptism with water, Acts 10, verse 37. Matthew 3.11 7. Because very many that are baptized within the visible church are damned. Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14 8. Because in those that are come of age 
Faith and repentance are pre-required to baptism, and therefore, before they be baptized, they have the beginning of regeneration. Acts 2.38 Ninth, because not all that are baptized are elected. Matthew 20, verse 16 But all that are elected by God are in time regenerated. 1 Peter 1, verse 2 Tenth, because the Holy Ghost is a most free agent and worker, and therefore his operation, whence the efficacy of baptism depends, whereby we are regenerated, is not tied to any one moment of time. John 3, verse 8. Eleventh, because baptism is not a converting, but a confirming ordinance, even as the Lord's Supper is. The papists do otherwise contradict the second part in affirming that the virtue and efficacy of baptism as to the abolishing and sealing up the remission of more grievous sins and failings which they call moral doth not extend itself to the time to come but to the time past so that if the person baptized fall into some deadly and dangerous sin which wounds the conscience there is need of another sacrament vis-a-vis penance whereby the remission of that mortal sin as they call it is sealed up unto him. By what reasons are they confused? First, because the sacrament of baptism, after the administration thereof, doth not cease to be a sacrament of the blood of Christ, which purges us from all our sins. Mark 1, verse 4, 1 John 1, verse 7. Second, because justification by faith, which is sealed up to us by baptism, Romans 4, verse 11, Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, is for all sins committed before and after baptism. Acts 13, verse 36. Third, because our Savior says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. Fourth, because not only the beginning of our salvation is referred to baptism, but also salvation itself and eternal life. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Fifth, because the scripture bringeth arguments from the use and remembrance of baptism, by which we that have been baptized are stirred up to holiness and newness of life, and to put off the old man, and consequently all those sins which the adversaries call mortal, Romans 3, verses 2 and 3, Galatians 3, 27, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Question 5. Is the sacrament of baptism but once to be administered to any person? Once only. Galatians 3.27, Titus 3, verse 5. Well then, do not the Marcionites err? And that's M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-T-E-S. Err, who maintain that men after grosser failings ought to be rebaptized. Yes. Do not likewise the... Hermer O Baptist there, and that's H E M E R O B A P T I S T S there, who maintain that men according to their faults every day ought every day to be baptized. Yes. Do not lastly the Anabaptist heir who maintain that children baptized ought to be rebaptized when they come to age? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because baptism is a sacrament of admission into the visible church and of regeneration, which is one only. 1 John 3, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Titus 3, verse 5. 
Ephesians 5.26. Second, because there is a command for repeating and frequent using the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25 and 26. But no precept or command for repeating baptism. Third, because circumcision to which succeeded baptism was never repeated as the Passover was. Fourth, because baptism is a seal of adoption. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. But whom God loveth and hath once adopted, those he never casteth off afterwards. Romans 2, verse 29. Fifth, because the apostle says there is but one baptism. Ephesians 4, verse 5. Namely, not only in number, but also in the administration on us all. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 29 of the Lord's Supper. Question 1. Is the sacrament of Christ's body and blood called the Lord's Supper an ordinance of God to be observed in the church unto the end of the world? Yes. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23, 24, 25, 26. Corinthians 10, verses 16, 17, 18, and 21. Matthew 26, Luke 22. Well then, do not the Quakers err who maintain the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is to be no gospel ordinance and that there is no gospel precept for the administration thereof until his second coming? Yes, they look upon this ordinance as a type only and figure or shadow of Christ's body and blood, which was commanded for that time and for some time to come, but not until his second coming. Thus, they abandoned that most precious ordinance of taking and eating the bread and drinking the wine, as they do baptism with water and all other ordinances, to the introducing of black atheism into the world. They pervert the true meaning of the scriptures for the defense of their damnable tenets, as by this one instance till he come, which is meant, say they, not of his second coming at the last day, but of his coming to dwell in his disciples and apostles, as if Christ had not been in them both before and after his ascension, even as they denied baptism in Christ's commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, to his disciples to be meant of baptism with water, because water is not expressed. They deny either willfully, as their ringleaders do, or ignorantly, or by delusion from the devil, as the most part do, the most sure and evident truths in Scripture, prattling and gaggling in their discourse, sense and nonsense, being oftener out of purpose than in purpose, skipping from one subject to another to save themselves from the strength of reason, like subtle foxes which, when they are beaten from one hole, fly into another. But while they are obstinate and pertinacious in maintaining lies and untruths, they ought to be confuted as the man was that denied snow to be white. For it is not so much blindness of mind or a weakness of judgment, as many well-meaning people are misled by, as a willful, obstinate resisting of the truth, as the perverse Jews did, or as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses. They that are against commanded gospel ordinances and the ministers of Christ whom they look upon as the priest of Baal, 
would, if they durst, shake off the very scripture and word of God. And it is of more than probable that if any could shun the odium of open blasphemy and the hazard of standing laws against blasphemers, the most part of them would disown the scriptures as many of them have done. For what kindness or respect can they have for the scriptures but such as men carry to topics or commonplaces whence they draw arguments to impugn others or defend themselves with? For they do not look upon the word as the rule, seeing as they dream they have a light within them beyond that more sure word of prophecy which the Apostle Peter prefers to a voice from heaven. Nay, they have so little veneration for the scriptures that they will not suffer them to be called the word of God, contrary to many express places of scripture, as John 10, verse 35, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22, Psalm 119, verse 172, Mark 7, verses 9, 10, and 13, 1 Kings 16, verse 12, 2 Kings 9, verse 36, Ezra 1, verse 1, 2 Kings 23, verse 16, Isaiah 28, verse 13, Ephesians 6, verse 17, Isaiah 37, verse 22. Question 2. Is Christ offered up to his Father in this sacrament? No. Is there any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or dead? No. Hebrews 9, verses 22, 24, 26, and 28. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that in this sacrament there is performed a true and real sacrifice, commonly called the Mass, wherein Christ, under the forms of bread and wine, without shedding of blood, is offered unto God by a priest and sacrificed for the living and for the dead to obtain remission of sin? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the sacrificing and offering up of Christ is a part of his own priesthood. Hebrews 9, verse 14. But the priesthood of Christ cannot be transferred from himself to any other. Hebrews 7, verse 4. Therefore, no priest can offer him up under the forms of bread and wine unto God. Second, because the offering of the body of Christ is once for all. It is but one single offering and cannot be repeated. Hebrews 10, verses 10, 12, and 13. Third, because the sacrificing and offering up of Christ is one only and of a most perfect merit and efficacy. Hebrews 9, verse 14. Hebrews 10, 14. But the repeating of the same sacrifice and the multitude of priests are a token of an imperfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26. Hebrews 10, verses 10 and 11. Fourth, if Christ be often offered, he must often die and suffer. Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26. But Christ, being now raised from the dead, cannot any more suffer and die. Romans 6, verse 9. Fifth, because that one and most perfect sacrifice of Christ did abrogate and take away all those external sacrifices and cause them to cease. Daniel 9, verse 17. Six, because there can be no propitiatory sacrifice for sin without shedding of blood. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Neither doth he die any more, but is now in heaven to appear in the presence of God for us and to intercede in our behalf. 
Hebrews 1, verse 3, Hebrews 9, verse 24, Hebrews 10, verse 12. 7. Because in every sacrifice there is required and really is a dying and destruction of the thing sacrificed, but Christ still liveth. Romans 6, verse 9. 8. Because no man can offer Jesus up to God but Christ himself. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Ninth, because in all external sacrifices properly so called, there is necessarily required a visible external host or thing sacrificed as the adversaries grant. But the thing which is said to be offered up by the mass priest, namely the body of Christ, is neither external nor visible here, it being in heaven and not on earth with man. Acts 3, verse 21. Question 3. Are private masses or the receiving this sacrament by a priest or any other alone as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and the reserving them for any pretended religious use, are these, I say, contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ? Yes. Mark 14 verse 23 1 Corinthians 11 25 26 27 28 and 29 Matthew 15 verse 9 Well then doth not the Romish church heir whose mass priest standing at the altar celebrate private masses the people either being absent or standing idle who take the cup to themselves only and drink thereof that administer the Lord's supper privately to sick persons and bedridden that teach to administer the communion to lay persons under both the forms of bread and wine is not only not necessary but unlawful who teach that for adoration cause the elements are to be lifted up and carried about and reserved for religious uses yes by what reasons are they confuted first because Christ did institute the last supper not for one a part, but for many together. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. Second, because Christ in celebrating the Last Supper did not eat and drink himself alone, but the disciples did also eat and drink with him. Matthew 26, verse 27 and 23. Third, because the apostle commands the Corinthians that when they come together to eat, they tarry one for another. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Fourth, because the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of brotherhood and communion of the saints. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. Fifth, because in the days of the apostles, the disciples and brethren met together for breaking of bread. Acts 20, verse 7. 6. Because Christ, when he had taken bread and distributed it, is said to have likewise taken the cup. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23, 24, 25, and 27. 7. Because it is expressly said and commanded, Christ foreseeing this black air which is now in their church, drink ye all of it. Matthew 26, verse 27. 8. Because the common people which are communicants gather more fruit from both the forms than from one only 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 and 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26 
Ninth, because the blood of Christ, the sign whereof is the wine in the cup, is not only shed for apostles, preachers, and pastors, but also for laymen and those that are not of the clergy, as the Popish Church speaks. John 3, verse 16. Tenth, because the apostles and Christians of the primitive church did communicate under both forms. Mark 14, verses 22 and 23, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Eleventh, because it is a villainy to detract and withdraw anything from Christ's testament, and therefore the cup which is left to us by legacy, Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, is not to be denied to any communicant, Galatians 3:15. Twelfth, because Christ did not institute any adoration of the element, therefore this adoration is to be condemned as will worship, Matthew 15, verse 9. Thirteen, because the adoration is founded upon the corporal presence of Christ's body in the sacrament, which is blasphemous, seeing Christ now is at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Fourteen, because this popish adoration of the elements is a worshiping of the creature together with the Creator, a most abominable idolatry. Daniel 11, verse 38. Matthew 23, verse 16 to 23. Fifteen, because if the elements ought to be adored, because Christ is sacramentally present in them, then ought believers in whom Christ dwelleth, John 14, verse 20, to be adored, which is absurd. Nay, the water and baptism ought to be worshipped, seeing the whole trinity is no less present there than in the supper. Sixteen, the worshipping of the bread, since no man, as the adversaries confess, is able to know certainly that the host is consecrated, is a work done without faith, and therefore a sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Seventeen, because Christ commanded the elements of bread to be broken, eaten, and distributed. But nowhere does Christ command the bread to be reserved. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24. Eighteenth, because the bread, which is the communion of the body of Christ, is the bread which we break. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Nineteenth, because the bread and the wine are not sacramental symbols, but in the very action. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Here it is said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, but not as often as you reserve this bread. 20. Because God commanded that nothing should be reserved of the paschal lamb to which bread and wine in the Lord's Supper have succeeded till the morning. Exodus 12, verse 10. That it might not be put to any other use, whether for idolatry or common food. Question 4. Do the outward elements in this sacrament in substance and nature remain still Truly and only bread and wine as they were before? Yes. Matthew 26, verse 29. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26, 27, and 28. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that the bread and wine, by the power of the words of consecration, this is my body, are truly transubstantiated into the very body and blood of Christ? Nothing remaining but the outward forms and accidents of the bread and wine? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? 
because the doctrine of transubstantiation makes Christ's body everywhere present, invisible, that cannot be handled without shape and figure, without human quantity, which is contrary to Matthew 26, verse 6. Here Christ is only present in Bethany. In John 20, verse 27, Thomas, Thomas touches Christ, and according to Acts 3, verse 21, the heavens must receive him and therefore cannot be everywhere. See Hebrews 3, verse 14 and 17. Second, because before and after consecration, the bread is called the communion of the body of Christ, but nothing is said or can be the communion of its own self. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Third, because after consecrations, the apostle calls not the bread a species or form of bread. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26, 27, and 28. And after consecration, Christ calls the wine the fruit of the vine. Matthew 26, verse 29. Fourth, because Christ did institute the supper to be a memorial of himself until he come again. But a memorial is not of things corporally present, but of things absent. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. Fifth, because that which is properly broken is not the body of Christ, but the bread is properly broken. Therefore, the bread is not the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Six, because Christ went up to heaven bodily and is to tarry there until the end of the world. Acts 3, verse 12. Seventh, transubstantiation destroys the very essence and being of the Lord's Supper. First, it destroys the sign because it takes away the substance of the bread and wine, and accidents and outward forms only remaining. Secondly, it destroys the things signified, for it robs and spoils the body of Christ of its true quantity and dimensions. For according to that infallible philosophical maxim, that is, by taking away the length, breadth, and thickness of any physical or natural body, you destroy, consequently, the very essence and being of that body and introduce, instead of one body, many bodies. Eighth, because transubstantiation takes away the sacramental analogy, and so when the sign is turned into the thing signified, all similitude between them is gone and ceases. Ninth, from this doctrine do follow many great absurdities inconsistent with religion, sense, and reason. As first, that Christ in the supper did both in drink himself, that he was holy in his own mouth, that he had a double and twofold body, one visible, another invisible, that a mouse or rat may eat Christ's body, that his body being reserved and laid up into a cupboard in a short time may turn into vermin. Must not Christ's body be in many places at once? Must not his body and all the parts thereof his head, hands, and feet, being the smallest and least crumb of the host, must not Christ's body, having now that bigness in heaven which he had upon earth, be bigger than itself, longer and thicker? If Christ's body may be in diverse places at once, why may not a man's body be in diverse places at once? That is granted by the adversaries, but a man cannot be in diverse places at once. Can Peter, for example, be both in Edinburgh and London in the same moment of time? He may then be both a man and not a man at the same time. 
he may be a man because living at Edinburgh, and not a man because dead at London. May not Peter at Edinburgh go to York and meet Peter there from London? And what a merry meeting must it be when Peter shakes hands with Peter and takes a glass of wine from him? May not Peter from London be killed there at York, and Peter from Edinburgh be left alive? May not Peter alive be reproduced in a thousand cities at once, and marry there a thousand wives, and beget in one night a thousand sons and daughters? May not Peter be so many times reproduced till he make up a hundred thousand fighting men? May not one candle by reproduction be made as many as may give light to the whole universe? May not one bottle of water be made so many as may serve an army of a hundred thousand? May not one guinea be reproduced as many times as may amount to five and twenty hundred thousand pounds sterling? A brave invention for paying five or six hundred thousand mercs of debt. Next, as the adversaries are engaged to maintain that one body may be in many places at once, so are they under necessity to affirm that many bodies may be in one place together by way of penetration, for in every crumb of the host is Christ's body, from which position it follows that a man's body may be contained within a nutshell, that a snuff box may be contain Arthur's feet, the hollow of an ox eye, the whole globe of the earth, that a sparrow may swallow one by one the seven planets, seeing each of them may occupy no more bounds of space than a grain of barley corn doth, and yet the sun which is swallowed will be as big as at present. For Christ's body in the host is as big and tall as when he was on the cross, as the adversaries confess. Tenth, we, may, we never read of a miracle wrought by God, but what was evident and conspicuous to all, and evidently seemed to be such. As Moses' rod was turned into a serpent and became a rod again, Exodus 4, verses 2 and 3. Such were the wonders of Egypt. Such were the dividing of the Red Sea, the striking of the rock, and the flowing out of the water. Numbers 20, verse 11. The destruction of Korah, Datham, and Abiram was evident to all the Israelites. Numbers 19, verse 31 and 32. So were the miracles which were wrought by the holy prophets. Such were the miracles which Christ and his apostles wrought. Was not the water most evidently turned into wine? John 2, verses 7, 8, and 9. But after the words of consecration uttered by the mass priest, the bread, as to sense, is the same thing it was. The bread hath the same taste, the same smell, that same touch, that same outward form and figure, that same color, that same weight. It occupies that same space and bounds and hath the same quantity in all its dimensions. But the rod was seen a serpent, and the serpent was seen a rod. The water was seen wine. It was known to be wine by the taste, by the smell, by the color. Christ never wrought such a miracle as the miracle of transubstantiation. In all his miracles he appealed to our outward senses. And was it ever heard that Christ wrought miracles without a necessity? Question 5. Is the body and blood of Christ in this sacrament corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine? No. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Well then, do not the Lutherans err who maintain that the body and blood of Christ are corporally in, with, and under the bread and wine, 
and that as the papists also teach, his body and blood are taken corporally by the mouth by all communicants, believers and unbelievers? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ was sitting with his body at the table. Second, because he himself did eat of the bread and drink of the wine. Third, because he took bread from the table. He took not his own body. He brake bread and did distribute it. He brake not his own body. So he took the cup and not his own blood. Fourth, because Christ said the cup was the New Testament in his blood, but the cup is not in, with, and under the wine. Fifth, because Christ said the bread was his body, which was broken. The wine was his blood, which was shed. But neither was his body broken under the bread, nor his blood shed under the wine, seeing Christ as yet was not betrayed, crucified, and dead. In the next place, the end of the Lord's Supper is that we may remember Christ and declare his death until he come. Luke 22, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, 25, and 26. Therefore, if Christ be now present with his body in, with, and under the bread, the sacramental remembrance of Christ and the declaring of his death ought to cease. This doctrine of consubstantiation is contrary to the articles of our faith. It is against the truth and verity of this human nature, which is visible, palpable, and in a certain place circumscriptive. It is against the article of his ascension, for it makes his body, which is now in heaven until the last day, to be in, with, and under a piece of bread. It is against the spiritual communion of the saints with Christ, the head, which the Lutherans make by this doctrine a corporal and carnal communion, contrary to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, Ephesians 1, verse 22, Ephesians 4, verse 4, Romans 7, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, 1 John 4, verse 13, and John 15, verse 5. It brings with it many and great absurdities, as that the body of Christ hath not one part without another, but as if all the parts of his body were in one part, which is contrary to the nature of a true and real quantum, which consists essentially in three dimensions, length, breadth, and thickness. It makes in effect his body to be no body. It brings down the glorious body of Christ from heaven and puts it under the base elements of this earth. It makes as many bodies of Christ as there are pieces of Eucharistical bread. It makes his body to be broken in, with, and under the bread, and bruised with the teeth. It sends his body down to the stomach, where it is turned into a man's substance and outwards thrown out. Moreover, all true eating brings life and salvation, John 6, verse 50 and 51. But eating by the mouth profiteth nothing, John 6, verse 36. Again, our union with Christ, and therefore our eating of his body, from whence arises this union, is not corporal, but spiritual. Ephesians 3, verse 17. And the body and blood of Christ are meat and drink, not carnal, but spiritual, even as the hunger whereby we long for this meat is spiritual, and the life to which we are nourished is spiritual, and the nutriment is spiritual. Lastly, 
According to this doctrine of consubstantiation, stiffly maintained by the Lutherans, it follows that Christ did eat his own body while he did eat the bread of the first supper, that his disciples did eat their Lord and Master's body, that his disciples were more cruel and inhuman to him than the Jews were that crucified him, that he is often buried with the entrails of wicked men. Question 6. Is the body and blood of Christ as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to the outward senses? Yes. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Well then, do not the Socinians err who maintain that the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament of the supper are not really present? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the body of Christ in this sacrament is spiritually eaten by believers, and his blood is spiritually drunken. But, but a spiritual presence is a true and real presence, because it comes and flows from the true and real causes, namely from faith and the Holy Spirit. Second, because in the right use of this sacrament, Christ is united to a man by faith and by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Third, because the body of Christ, insofar as it was given to the death and was broken for us on the cross, and insofar as his blood was shed for the remission of our sins, all these, I say, are the internal matter of this sacrament. Luke 22, verse 19, Matthew 26, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Fourth, because those who eat and drink unworthily are said not to discern the Lord's body, and therefore to such as eat and drink worthily, the body and blood of Christ must be truly present, according to their spiritual sense, namely faith. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Fifth, because length of time doth not hinder, but that faith may take things past and things to come spiritually present, and therefore distance of place does not hinder, but that things most distant as to place may be made spiritually and truly present. Hebrews 11, verse 1, John 6, verse 56, Philippians 3, verse 10, Hebrews 11, verse 9. Question 7. Are all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, unworthy of his table? Yes. Can they, without great sin against Christ, while they continue such, partake of these holy mysteries? No. And are not therefore church officers to debar those who appear grossly ignorant and scandalous? Yes. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 5, 6, 7, and 13. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27, 28, 29. And 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 and 15 Matthew 7 verse 6 Well then do not some men err in their practice if not in their opinions who suffer many ignorant, scandalous and ungodly persons to come to the table Yes By what reasons are they confuted First, because ignorant and wicked men eating and drinking unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of Christ and so bring judgment upon themselves 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29 Second, because all were not admitted to eat of the Passover neither was it for all promiscuously to part, partake thereof 
Numbers 9, verses 6 and 7, and Second Chronicles 23, verse 19, Ezekiel 22, verse 26. Third, because it was not lawful for any man to come to the marriage feast that wanted or lacked the wedding garment, Matthew 22, verse 11. Fourth, because pearls are not to be cast before dogs and swine, men manifestly ungodly and wicked, Matthew 7, verse 6. Fifth, because they who deserve to be excluded from the fellowship and society of believers ought not to be admitted to the sacrament of intimate communion and familiarity with God, but such are all those who walk inordinately. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Six, because if the church willingly and wittingly admits such persons, they stir up the wrath of God against themselves for suffering God's covenant and his holy symbols to be openly profaned. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Seventh, because the Lord will not suffer such as are manifestly and contumulously wicked to take his covenant in their mouth, and therefore to such persons the seals and symbols of his covenant ought not to be offered. Psalm 50, verse 17. Eight, because ignorant, profane, and godless persons ought to be esteemed as heathens and publicans. Matthew 18, verse 17. This ends tape number 10 of Truth Victory Over Error by David Dixon. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Air by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.